What were you saying? I'm less concerned about your simple woman brain and your artistic temperament. All right. <laughs> 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 anybody in the sub basement recently? The yes. elevator happened to take me down there with the lights on, so I just didn't know. Do I need to turn on? Did I leave it on? Did I leave it on to me? I guess so. It's down there interesting. Okay. Yeah. Looking at the tables. Okay. I put a note on it. Don't touch it. Don't break it. It's stages up from here. Okay. So we're in the process of talking about Christendom in the Renaissance, and again, we're, 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 we're having problems. It's kind of wobbling out of control, as we've talked about. And we're going to pick up where we left off last week. 1453, Constantinople is going to fall to the Ottoman Turks. Now, when I say the Ottoman Empire, have you heard of the Ottoman Empire? Who created all the, all the couches out there, right? So, um, started off as this little emirate, this Turkic emir, uh, named Osman, who the, the Europeans then referred to as Ottoman because we screwed it up. But it's one little itty-bitty little, little emirate there. But then it grew and grew and grew and grew and grew. And uh, all these different uh, later sultans like Murad II extended the borders, went past just Turkey into Europe itself. And so by the time it got to its height, it's a pretty huge empire, this Ottoman Empire. And pretty, uh, not only expansive, but important to the history of Europe. They invaded uh, and, and conquered Albania in 1410. They took <laughs> Serbia in 1448. And then Mehmet II, or Muhammad II, or however you want to say it, uh, laid siege to Constantinople in 1453. This is really kind of important. Because this is, you know, hi, come in. Because this is... This is Constantinople. This is the last bastion of everything Christian in Central Asia. Because if you remember, there was a point where all of this was decidedly Christian. We don't think about any of that as being particularly Christian nowadays. But there was a time when all of that was strongly Christian. But between the Mongols and now the Turks, that's all getting pretty much crunched. Now, you got this one. Is this uh, a Muslim back? Oh, yes, the, the Turks, the, the Ottoman Turks are okay. decidedly Muslim. Okay. Uh, if you're talking about sultans and emirs and things like that, you're talking about a Muslim socio-political system. But that's a good question. Thank you. Constantinople had these big, beautiful walls. Uh, it's a, it's, they've got their, their little navy stuck in there in the port. You can't hardly dislodge them. And they've got these big, thick walls that nobody can get through. The last time anybody got through the walls was, what, 400 years ago. 200 years ago, I can do math, 250 years ago, and that was the Crusaders, and there had to have been a fire and riots and all sorts of things before they could even get there and do that. So, nobody can get through these walls. This is great. Uh, and then since that time, the walls had even been improved. So, that's why you've got this stuck little thing. It used to be that that the uh, the empire was pretty was pretty large when you think about that Byzantine Empire, but it gotten stuck down this one last little bit. And think about how it had shrunk just in the last couple of centuries to this one little little town. Even though they can't dislodge it, you can see why. Last week when we talked about the emperor going over to uh, to the councils of Basil and Florence and really trying to make sure everybody or Ferrara, I should say, make sure everybody was on his side. It's like let's let's get let's get in good with the Romans because that's all he's got left. That's it. Hard to dislodge, but can't do much of anything. Totally surrounded by Ottomans, right? 
You're in Europe. You want to help somehow. What are you going to do? You're from Hungary. What do you want to do? How can you help them? I mean, you've, you've got a couple of popes that have said, hey, maybe we should have some crusades. Nobody seems to want to actually go on crusade. What else could you maybe do? Supplies okay, get, get them supplies somehow. One particular Hungarian came up with a really interesting supply. There's a guy named Orban who is an inventor. He's like, I'm not filthy rich, but I, I do, I'm a gunsmith. I know how to make cannons. I came up with this really cool idea of making a super cannon. The cannon of all cannons. This thing fires four foot diameter cannonballs. This thing takes out Anything, it's the nuclear bomb of cannons of its day. Because cannons are the, the big thing now, right? So, it's like this is the uber cannon. Uh, you can take out a ship. You can take out whole regiments. This is going to be great. Tell you what, I will sell this to the emperor. emperor new emperor Constantine the, the 11th. Defend your city with this. Mount it on your walls. This will be great. I, I, I got a, I've got a couple prototypes made. I've sunk my whole fortune into it. You can take these right now. So if you're Emperor Constantine, what do you say? Sure. Absolutely. That's awesome. You rock. Thank you. Actually, Constantine and his advisor said, no, we don't think we really need those. Why do you think that they would turn down super cannons like this? How do you use them? Yeah. Yeah. It, well, I mean, you can, you can put it, you can, it's, it is, it's hard to use. Um, they had a tendency every once in a while to blow up, but for the most part they didn't. Um, but beyond that, they're like, how do you aim it at a moving target? I mean, this is, you, you, this is pretty, this doesn't move good. You know, you, you, you can move it a little bit, but if that ship that you're aiming at moves at all, if the, if the regiment just moves to the left, you know, it's like, you just got a big old ball rolling past them. They're like, no, we'd be better just buying more mercenaries. Thanks anyway. So you're Orban and you go, I got nothing. I spent everything I had building this for you guys and building the prototypes for you guys. I got I got nothing. They're like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Something like that, that's better for you know, aiming at stationary targets. You know, like walls. walls. <laughs> so if you're Orban and you're bankrupt because you designed this and you've taken them down to Constantinople to show to the emperor and the emperor didn't want it, what do you do? So the Mehmet! He's like, there you go. the beginning of every evil village story. Actually, I prefer, I prefer to think of this as the dumbest business decision ever. I mean, I would have bought the stupid things, if nothing else, just to keep them out of the hands of Mehmet. But so he's like, nope, nope, nope. I'm going to sell the guns to Mehmet. And I'm recouping my own losses. And he used them to destroy the walls of Constantinople. Which is how they got through. After years and years and years of sieging and not being able to do a darn thing, thanks to the cannons that Constantinople decided they didn't really need, Constantinople fell. Now, for those of you who really like irony, uh, eventually the, uh, the Ottoman Turks took over Hungary, too. So, I'm sure that, I'm sure that Orban eventually was like, nope, that didn't work out so good for me. But, May 29th. Of, uh, of 1453, the city finally falls. Turks raped and pillaged for three days. They killed the elderly infants. Horrible, nasty, torturous ways. You know how people talk about, like, you don't want to get caught by the Apaches? 
you know, you'd, you'd rather just put a bullet in your brain before it gets... There was a whole discussion that these two had about, if you loved me, you would shoot me before you, you let the Indians get me. The Turks were kind of like that. The people you do not want to fall into the hands of would be the Turks. They were really, really good at torturing people in really nasty ways. They spent three days torturing people in really nasty ways, doing whatever they felt. In fact, they gathered, uh, they, they killed all the people that were weak. They gathered all those people who were strong in the Hagia Sophia. Do you remember what that was? Church. It's church building. It's a really nice church building. It's the largest, one of the largest buildings uh, of like single rooms in the world. The largest church building. If you remember, this is the church building where John Chrysostom had preached to emperors, right? Yeah, this now has become the world's largest slave market. Because all the all the Turks have gathered everybody in there to to figure out who should be slaves sent to where. After those three days, Mehmet says, "Nope, we're going to stop looting. We're going to rebuild this city. We've burned it to the ground. We've broken down its walls. Now we're going to rebuild the walls, and it will be the jewel of Islam. This is going to be this is going to be an awesome place. And we're going to retrofit the Hagia Sophia as a mosque, and it is still a mosque today. Looks like that on the inside. Um, so." There are a lot of Christians still in Turkey who are still bothered by the fact that this is a mosque. You know I mean, the quintessential Christian church is now a mosque. It's kind of a sticking point. So the Ottomans continue to use their version of the city's name, which I, I, I don't know exactly how you pronounce this. I couldn't figure out exactly how to pronounce it. Constantinie? But... Uh, but their official, in their official documents, but the, the, the Turkish word for the city came more and more popular. What's the Turkish word for that city? Istanbul. Istanbul. Not Constantinople, right? No, Anyway, the point is, uh, supposedly, Pope Calixtus III, that was a Medici, uh, blamed the city's fall on the bad omen of Halley's Comet. Uh, that had uh, that had gone past uh, earlier that year. So what do you do if you're the Pope? Oh, excommunicate! You excommunicate the comet. That's why Constantinople fell. You gotta excommunicate the comet. And that's why I said last week the comet had a comet. You know, so you know I don't blame him one bit. Shame on you. Anyway, I keep showing this picture. When you think of Islam and you think of, of flags of Islam, do you do you oftentimes think of like the crescent and the star kind of stuff? We oftentimes think about this. Um, technically, though, Islam is not supposed to ever use imagery, right? Because it's against the religion. You're not supposed to have pictures of like stars and moons and things like that. It's strictly prohibited, which is ironic then that they have stars and moon all over the place. How does that work? Where did this start? Anybody know? Halley's Comet? No, no, no. That's a really good guess, though. This is actually the flag of Constantinople. And so when they conquered Constantinople, they took its standard. And so uh, from then on, the Turks used this. In fact, that's the flag of Turkey. And you'll see all sorts of different flags used within Islam making use of this crescent and star thing that they took from Constantinople. So what did it mean as Constantinople's flag? Um... That's a good point. I, if I remember correctly, and I'm not sure I do, don't take this, don't take this uh, too, too to heart. I think it's like, you know, we're the star, we're the moon, we're the sunlit sky kind of thing, uh -huh. the, the whole schmear. Okay. Um, but I, but I, I need to look that up. That's a very good question. Wow. But so 
at least and when I talked with uh, I talked with uh, with one Muslim at one point asking about this, aren't you not supposed to be using iconography of any kind? Um, his argument, at least, was we're not. What we're doing is showing what we've conquered. This is this is the flag of the people we conquered, and so therefore we're strong. And we're, now, I, I I think by the time you get to the point where they've got green flags and all sorts of things, I think they've kind of forgotten that this is originally Constantinople. It was interesting that with his background in history, he was just like, no, no, this isn't us using an icon. This is us going, ah, Constantinople's flag in your face, ah. Which I'm not sure really answers the, the question, are you still using iconography or not, but at least that's what he was thinking about. So, might be fun. Anyway, so the Ottomans are going to use Constantinople as a base to invade Europe. Because now they've got all of this, right? It's all, all that is, is green. In fact, all of this is Muslim too, it's just not Ottoman. But um, they conquered Transylvania in 1454. Uh, they conquered Athens and all of Greece in 1456. They conquered Bosnia in 1463. Remember Bosnia? How many people actually remember the whole Bosnian conflict? Nasty, nasty things that they did to one another. Do you remember that? They, the, this, is where, this is where most, uh, if, if anybody in, in, in America learned this term, this is where they learned the term ethnic cleansing. Uh, what is ethnic cleansing? Genocide, where you go, I'm going to make sure that I kill every single one of you. I'm going to rape all your daughters so that they have my children. I'm going to make sure that your genetic line ends today. Why did the Christians and Muslims in this area of Europe hate each other that much? Where did that start? There. Everything that happened in the, in the late 20th century started 500 years before at this point, when the Ottoman Turks took over in Bosnia. And, and, and so you have these, these Catholics and Orthodox, but, but specifically Muslims, fighting one another and doing really, really nasty stuff to one another. It's interesting that we keep hearing about Crusades and how horrible the Christian church was, but we don't hear about the Muslims because they crusaded well, technically too. Exactly. In fact, we... we uh, when we were talking about the Crusades, when we launched into it, I, I said, technically, technically, they started it. I mean, they, the, the, there were Muslim jihads before there were Christian Crusades as such. There were Christians who killed one another in the name of Christ, but when you talk about this large scale, hey, let's all go and kill all of them. No, that was technically starting off as a Muslim thing. Now, I'm not sure that that makes it okay. If if you if, if, if yeah, if Bill comes and kicks me in the shins, and so I shoot Bill in the head, and so Bill's family comes and slaughters all of my family, so that my my extended relations go and kill everybody who ever met Bill. It's like I'm not sure. At some point, you go. I don't care who started it. You know, but you're right. Is um, you got um, intrinsic. In, in the Muslim religion, intrinsic when you read the Quran, especially when you read the Hadith, is that you, you should really go and kill everybody until they become Muslim. You know, it, it, it is, um, it's just a nasty, it's a nasty way to think of religion in general that, <coughs> at this time in history. Uh, oh, and then they invaded the Crimea in 1487. Anybody heard anything about the Crimea recently? Yeah, the, Cry the Crimean Peninsula, this is where the Russians and Ukrainians are fighting right now. So, again, it's like, well, all this ethnic, well, we're this, we're not that, well, we're that, well, we have ethnic, well, we're Muslim, well, we're the Christian. You go, yeah, 
all starting back here about 500 years ago. So all this is kind of germane to where we're sitting right now. We tend to go, oh, it's, that's history. Yeah, it's going on right now. Now, technically, I have to amend the map. It should look more like this. You see this little white spot there? That's the way it should look, because Wallachia was actually a vassal state. They, they were never conquered, technically, by the Ottoman Turks, because the Voivod, the, uh, the prince of, of Wallachia, was a guy named Vlad II, Vlad Dracul. They called him Dracul the Dragon because he was in part of Zygmunt's Order of the Dragon, right? We've been talking about these guys, so uh, Vlad was one of the very first of the Order of the Dragons. They called him the Dragon. Anyway, Vlad, and so his family is called the Draculeshti, <coughs> the Dragon family. Anyway, he kept Wallachia out of direct Turkish control because he paid money for it. He's like, every year we will pay you a ton of money to not invade our country. Besides, I'll give you two of my own sons for you to hold as political prisoners. This is not uncommon. This is, we saw this before. We saw, um, this is why Attila knew so much about Rome and Roman tactics, because they swapped prisoners back and forth, right? Which is, of course, why the general that went up against Attila knew so much about Huns and their tactics, because he was the one that got switched. So it's kind of interesting how well this works in history. Anyway, so he gave two of his sons to Murad as prisoners so that so that uh, everybody could be happy, everybody could be fine. Uh, pardon me? Well, Radu, the younger brother, uh, was perfectly happy. Uh, he served the Turks happily, converted to Islam. The Turks called him Radu the Pretty. He does have swarthy hair. He does have swarthy hair. Um, there's a lot of creepy bits about Radu and, and how well he got along with all the Turkish guys. But let's just say for this matter that Radu got along swell with the Turks. He was fine with them. It's the older brother, Vlad III, that refused to convert to Islam, and so he was regularly tortured by the Turks, learned a lot of cruelty at their hands, experienced a lot of cruelty at their hands. Now, he was released by Mehmet, who said, all right, your dad's dead. I want you to go back and be the puppet vassal ruler. You learn from us. Go, go be the vassal ruler of Wallachia. Vlad's like, no, I learned a lot of things from you guys. Pope Pius calls for a crusade. Let's go on crusade. Let's go stop the Turks, because it's scary. There's a lot of green coming toward Europe, and into Europe, and in Europe, and coming toward Rome. So Vlad the son, called Vlad Draculea, son of the, of the dragon, because his dad was Vlad Dracul. So Vlad Dracula, son of, uh, of the dragon, and the Hungarian king named Matthias Corvinus accepted. They're like, yes, we will go on crusade. Now, I'll give Corvinus a little bit of credit for being clever. He just took the papal funds and built up Hungary. It's like, yeah, this is great. I'm not going anywhere. I'm just going to strengthen my forces here. I'm going to use it to, uh, to become this platonic philosopher king. I'm going, to, I'm going to host, like I said, theological debates. I'm going to write some books. I'm going to be a patron to the arts and poets and scientists and all that is great, but it's paid for with the money I was supposed to use to go on crusade. Better spent this way. In some ways, I suppose. I suppose. Except that he actually said he would use it for something else. I mean, it's like if, if somebody if somebody paid me money to do something and then I, I, I said, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I'm going to totally do it this way. I might have made a better philosophical choice, but the ethics are a little shaky. But Vlad actually took it, 
please, he's, I'm going to take it seriously. I refuse Mehmet his annual tribute. I will not give him any money. Um, and Mehmet's like, what's up? I put you in charge. What? What's up? So Mehmet sent envoys to Vlad, and Vlad said, you know what? They didn't take off their hats when they saw me, so I'm nailing their turbans on their heads and sending them back to you. This is actually a nice little screenshot from um, uh, a Transylvanian movie all about how cool Vlad was. He's a hero over there. You understand that, right? Because, I mean, he, he nailed their hats to their heads because he's cool. You get the joke, right? They wouldn't take their hats off, so now we have Mark went and he got to visit that. So it's really it's really cool that he got to visit Dracula's castle. Mm -hmm. When I say Transylvania, you say, ooh, vampires. Transylvania just means just means the country beyond the forest. Transylvania. Transylvania. Like Pennsylvania. Like Pennsylvania, yes, exactly. So um, you know, they when they think of it, they don't think, ooh, they go, it's where we live, you know, this is good stuff. And this guy kicked the Turks out. This is, this is rocking. He also killed thousands of Turks along the Danube, specifically impaling 23,884. The reason I know that is because he wrote a letter to uh, Matthias Corvina saying, I impaled 23,884. That's not including all the houses I burned, all the other people I killed, everything. This is a really nasty, slow way to die. You might not think it's a slow way to die, and I'm not going to go into detail. It's a slow way to die. Where did he learn this kind of cruelty? From the Turks. You go, oh, oh, we should never have mistreated that boy, or we should have killed him. But you don't, you don't abuse somebody and torture them for years and then give them power. That's what you call ill-advised. What did the brother, who was the, uh, the, the good son, Robin? You know, yeah, what did he about his brother getting sent back to be in well, power. Was he ever mad that he didn't get to be the... No, he's the younger brother. He's like, no, I mean, I'm only going to be powerful if Vlad dies. And since Radu actually fought for Mehmed against the Wallachians, you know, I, I think he's just like, yeah, I, I, I'm not upset that Vlad is king, but I'm perfectly fine with taking out Vlad and becoming king. So, never, never happened, but... Vlad, Vlad was so big into this that he earned the name Vlad Tepish, Vlad the Impaler. When you get the name, everybody knows you by the nickname Vlad, the guy who likes to impale people. You do this a lot. Creepy, creepy guy. So creepy that Bram Stoker said, I want a historical basis for my vampire count. This is so the guy. Once I start reading about Vlad Dracula, I'm like, oh, I can't picture somebody more bloodthirsty, more more up, upsetting in history than this guy. Now, you see why somebody sitting in England might sit there and go, ooh, what a horrible, bloodthirsty, vile human being, right? Can you see why people sitting in Transylvania say, what an absolute uber stud? Totally different perspective on this sort of thing. Did he hurt his own people? Oh, yeah. Or just... Oh, yeah. Um, so it was not just the church. No. There was... Um, uh, and, and he, but he did it in a very clever sort of way, like with the nailing the hats. There's another story about a guy who um, upset him, and uh, the, the guy's uh, leggings were too short, and so Vlad chopped his feet off, and he said, now they fit just right. You know, stuff like that. Yeah. Those sorts of things. 
Uh, he was just a very cruel, very unpleasant person. But he kept Wallachia free from the Turks. In fact, again, part of the legend, some people will say, man, how do you do that? I mean, you have this little kingdom there, and the Turks have taken over everything, and they're not taking over yours. There's one absolutely crucial battle that you guys won that there's no reason why you should have won it. Um, he must have made a deal with the devil or something. Which, of course, is, is, is what? Another thing that gave Brom this, this background. About. That's exactly what he did. Were the Turks scared of him? I mean, I would think, were the Turks scared of him? Oh, yeah. I mean, if he impaled 23,000. I mean, that's the thing. Is it, that's, that's, okay. The only reason to impale somebody, the only two reasons to impale somebody, is because you really want to be mean to that person and or you really want to make a point. The only reason to impale 23,000, yeah, I'm sorry for the pun, okay, you, you want to, I didn't even think about that, because you're trying to, to, to get, uh, uh, you're trying to get something across to your enemies. The only reason to impale 23,000 people is so that your enemies walk up going, I'm very, very scared now. I don't want to do this. And didn't he, like, I mean, post them along the road to oh, yeah. birds? You know, so, like, people coming to his place would, like, or coming into his country would see? Yep. All along the Danube. Yep. So, wacky fun. Okay, speaking of books, because we're talking about books, right? Speaking of books, something a little bit more pleasant. 1455, Gutenberg produced yeah. the first printed Bible. Now, this isn't the first printed anything. You've had these woodblock prints where you, you make this big old block and then you can dip it in, 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 uh, in ink and then smush it against paper. You can do that. But he used movable type. What is that? Do you know what that is? What do, what do, what's the difference between movable type and, and this? You, just, you take the loose type and you just stack it up together. That's right. You've got all these individual little loose pieces and you can rearrange them however you want. So you're not just left with carving one big woodblock, and that's all that that thing can ever print. Uh, it's not like lithography kind of thing. This, you've got all sorts of little itty bitty things, and you can rearrange them all the time, and you can print whatever you want to do. You can make individual letter blocks and move them around to print different pages. Now, it might take you a while to lay all that out, and until you get used to it, it's really hard to go from right to left with everything backwards. I mean, which is why. When you look at some of these older books, every once in a while you'll see letters transposed or things like that because it's real easy for you to do it. But, but this changes everything. Uh, instead, of, instead of somebody spending months and months and months making this lithograph or making this, uh, this one-page sort of thing, you go, no, now you can, you can print whole books and stuff. Instead of a, a Bible taking years for a monastery to produce by hand. Because remember, uh, remember Columba? We talked about this extremely good-looking guy. Um, the Irish missionary to Scotland, uh, he, was, he was exiled to Scotland, if you'll remember, because he produced his own Psalter. And the monastery said, you don't get to do that. It's intellectual property of Clonard. You don't get to do that. That's bad. We took years putting that thing together, and he took years writing his own Psalter and got in major trouble for it. So he's like, no, no, no. Now, now, once you've laid it out, it can take weeks produce several copies of a Bible, not just a Psalter, but the whole Bible. That's huge, right? It's much less expensive. And like I said, in fact, once the type was actually set, a printer's assistant could even print it. It's a, I'm not going to say it's, it's crazy easy, but compared to what was coming before, it was crazy easy, right? Now, the more expensive copies, because I said it's, these are about the cheaper ones, the more expensive copies 
uh, could cost upwards of 30 florins, which in modern terms is about $100,000. He spent $100,000 buying a Bible. But when you realize that's the only way you can get a Bible, that's kind of important for some people. But the more expensive ones made use of illumination and rubrication by craftsmen. Now, your, your printer's assistant could potentially print off some of the cheaper things, but to make a really nice $100,000 Bible, it takes some craftsmen. When I say illumination, you've probably seen this in manuscripts. You go those little mini paintings up in the corners and stuff. But technically, technically, to be illumination, it needs to make use of either actual gold or silver inlays. Because then it illumines it. The light comes off. It shines off. So an illumination, you know, any kind of little drawing up the corner is an illumination, but technically an illumination has to have gold or, or silver actually inlaid. That would be expensive. And you have to be really, really, really good to do that. Um, but it also makes it like impossible to reproduce the really, really expensive ones. Each one of those, it's its own work of art. You can print all the normal pages, but then for somebody to come in and do the art on these illuminations, that's impressive. And and every single one of these is going to be done by hand, so every single one of these is going to be different. Most of them still exist? A lot of them do. A lot of them still exist. A, a, a surprising number of, of original Gutenberg Bibles still exist. I guess it's not technically surprising, because they were $100,000! You're going to take care of that thing. You're not going to like slap it around in the mud and all that kind of stuff. Um, You're not going to take it on campaign with you so much. What were you saying? I'm sorry. Um, rubrication. I use that word too. It's from the Latin rubrico, means to color red. Rubrication are those little red headings and the big red letters there that start new paragraphs and stuff. So if you're talking about something being rubricated, that's what you're talking about. The paragraphs, they're the little headings that tell you how to read this or what this chapter is about. Um, giving directions, basically. Which is the background for two things that should be quasi-familiar to you today. Number one, the word rubric, which is what teachers use to give instructions about how you're supposed to read an assignment or do something, is a rubric. They don't really color rubrics red anymore, but that's why the teacher's directions about how you're supposed to do an assignment are from the Latin to color red. Second, the red letter editions of the Bible, where you actually have the words of Jesus in red. Now, that's not what the Gutenberg Bible did, but still this idea of going, oh, you color special things red. It is technically rubrication. For what it's worth. Oh, yeah. Is that why like teachers always like mark up your papers? Because <laughs> I'm thinking red means bad. Red equals bad, you know, because you messed this up. So I had a teacher in college that said he liked to use red ink because it looked like it's easy. <laughs> um, personally, <laughs> I, I, I it, it actually it, I mean really most of us and Sarah you can jump in any of the educators can jump in with this most teachers I think use red just because it jumps off the page and you can see the corrections easiest but probably I wouldn't be at all surprised if at least part of where that came from was this whole let me give you some directions as to how this should have gone I wouldn't be at all surprised if there were a basis in rubrication that never thought about that 
Now, I think, like I said, it's primarily just because it jumps off the page easier than blue. You could do green, too, but still have this. Red, red traffic lights. That's right. Red stop signs. Red catches your attention. Almost not, not related to Rubik's Cube. Rubik's Cube. No, it's not. Yeah. <laughs> but, uh, but, yeah, no, but, yes, red catches your attention, which is why almost every fast food place uses red. So. All right. So do Gutenberg make an awful lot of money on these Bibles? I'm thinking. Yes and no. Cleaned up. Uh, yes. Um, they're very expensive to produce, and um, not everybody always paid. And uh, he, he was not the best businessman. In his life, he had several different business ventures. He, he ended up not having a lot of money, actually, ironically enough. Unlike, unlike modern people who make tons of money and never have any problems. I'm amazed. If you really want to just look up like how many Hollywood stars or, or NFL stars or people like that go bankrupt because they're just dumb. You know, so. Okay, so Gutenberg, for instance, uh, actually just a Latin Bible. So it's Jerome's Bible. You remember Jerome, right? Made his Bible. And I don't want to say that Gutenberg didn't care about his faith. He, he did. But he basically do it, did it because he's like, there are going to be a lot of very wealthy people that are going to pay a lot of money for this sort of thing. They're going to be perfectly happy to spend $100,000 on a Bible. The Medici's, the Borgias. They're actually going to want to buy it. The Medici's because they think it's amazing. Borgias because they go, look, I got one too, just like a Medici. Yes. Yeah. Totally different perspective to it. But the, the key thing here, and this is maybe even bigger than the fact that he printed a Bible in and of itself, is that now mundane things can be printed by movable type. We tend to think, ah, oh, big things can be printed. That's huge. You go, no, little things can be printed. That's huge. Like a newspaper, exactly. A newspaper, a pamphlet, a book, a booklet, a Bible can be printed in your language. You get to print it. You don't have to go through a monastery to get something written. You don't have to go through all these high flute scholars. You can print a social booklet saying, you know what, I want everybody to read this one-page thing about why the king did something naughty today. But I want everybody to read it. Now you can put mundane things on Facebook. Well, yeah, now you can put mundane things on Facebook, which just makes me sad. Um, but also, all these things, theology, news, political theory, economics, literature, all these historically scholastic things are now literally in the hands of common men. It changes everything. All of a sudden, well, I was going to say, John Milton's publisher actually wrote in 1640, the slightest pamphlet is nowadays more vendible than the works of the learnedest men. In other words, uh, I, can, I, can, I can take Milton's poetry, I can take Virgil, I can take uh, Plato, and I can sell them to people, but if I really want to make money, just get this common pamphlet and sell a gazillion of those things because people will read that all over the place. Everything's flip-flopped from the way things started off. And now you have to, now, now it becomes a means for dictionaries. Or like, because language, now yep. words are going to start being spelled the same. Uniform. Very soon, you're going to have to have a uniform sense of this. What were you saying? Just that it's the same today. In many ways. That, I mean, how many of the books in your household... A, how many books do people own nowadays? It just makes me sad. But how many books in your household are Plato and Aristotle and Virgil versus how many of them are you know, Batman? And you know, I should I have a lot of comic books I can say. Uh, 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 which always makes me chuckle when I when I see a movie like uh, uh, Star Trek Four where they go back in time. 
anyway, Star Trek Four. But they're talking about uh, they start listing all the, like Jack, you know, Jacqueline Suzanne, and all these different trashy novels, and and Leonard Nimoy goes, ah, oh, the classics. This looks like a simple process, but you have to remember that he, he made the original castings and then poured the lead in and then had it checked in. And it was a big process. It wasn't just a simple, just. Oh, it was a huge. It was a huge. Setting type is not this process. It is. It, it took. I mean, just to sculpt one of those things takes a craftsman like a week, and he had to have to have all the different. I don't remember what it was. I think it's to have all the different. Um, characters that he had to do to print the Bible was something, two hundred and something keys, and two hundred and something of those little thingy bobbies, and so you go well if it takes a craftsman a week to sculpt one of those, and you need two hundred and something or other, and there's fifty two weeks a year. You want a full size page full of them. Exactly, and so you sit there and you go this this is going to take you a long time, and so yeah it's a it's a very complex process, but once you have those things crafted. You can start printing things, and this is so much easier, ultimately, than than the manuscripting that the monks were doing. So yeah, like like he was saying, all of a sudden people wanted to read. You get social movements that are born. The world changes. Think about: Can you have the the American Revolution without the Federalist Papers or Common Sense or that sort of thing? I mean, all these pamphlets and leaflets going out there changing things. Um, arguably, even the Reformation itself, because. When Luther posted stuff up on the bulletin board on the Wittenberg door, on what date? October 31. Reformation. Friday is Reformation Day. Uh, this Friday. When he posted up on the bulletin board, it would have just basically stayed on the bulletin board. Maybe a couple of monks would have read it. or We would be discussing it as a footnote as one of these funky, huh, this guy back in the 4th century used to think this. Huh, interesting. But that they got reprinted. That somebody put it... To, you know, typeset it and printed them out and got them out into the hands of everyday people. Made it huge. All of this points back to Gutenberg's movable type. So this this really did change everything. All right, 1464, Paul II becomes the new pope uh, in large part because he was due to, he was Eugene's uh, Eugene's nephew. Remember Eugene from last week? In fact, our word nepotism comes from the Italian word nipote, meaning nephew. Because the popes kept getting their nephews as popes. An amazing number of popes are the nephews of other popes. Anyway, he's the first pope to really make use of all these printing presses. In fact, uh, within, within the span of a couple of decades after Gutenberg, uh, the, the papal uh, states have two printing houses. And they're putting out all sorts of nifty stuff, all sorts of documents. What? Nifty stuff, yeah. Books, books, books papal bulls, nifty stuff. Stuff that you used to have to say, okay, you seven monks, make me five copies of this. I'll get back to you in a month. You know, it's like, no, no, no. Make a gazillion copies. Except, unfortunately, that's about Paul's only positive legacy, because um, he was also uh, apparently a homosexual sadist who enjoyed pleasuring himself watching handsome young men being tortured naked in his private rooms. That's, I mean, because he's Pope, so you get to do whatever you want, right? More than one contemporary. No, no, they were worse. Um, <laughs> yeah, um, more than one contemporary source said that he died while sodomizing a young boy. Um, not the first pope to die in this sort of a thing, if you recall. Um, but again, they're just getting worse and snacky as you go along. So, seventy-one, Sixtus the sixth, or no, no, Sixtus the fourth. <laughs> 
<laughs> becomes a new pope. Hey, it's hard to say. Six he is the fourth. sort of sickly. Well, there's all sorts of different paintings that you can go to learn with them. Uh, he felt really devout cardinal. He was renowned for being devout. He'd written a lot. He was a, he, everybody talked about what an awesome guy he was. Once he became pope, though, he became famous for giving out gifts to all of his family and friends. That he would do anything to make money and get money for everybody else. Um, he fomented all sorts of problems all around. In fact, he was involved with an attempt, assassination attempt against uh, Lorenzo de' Medici in uh, Florence because he wanted his nephew to get on the, on the, on the throne in Florence. Uh, it didn't work out, by the way, but still, it's nice to know that the Pope was, was helpful with, with all of that. He also increased the number of papal brothels dramatically while he was, while he was Pope. Now, if you remember, for a couple of centuries, the church hadn't just been allowing, they'd been running brothels, right? Um, they argued that they prevented decent women and small children from being, being raped because it's not like guys can control themselves. Ironically, and you sit there and go, what? That is so crazy. Who would believe that? Anybody remember how many arguments people made about, well, you know, Clinton is just being a guy. He's not really being a bad guy. He's just being a male. And males genetically have to have multiple sexual partners. And so it's perfectly normal for him to, you know, what? You know, you're actually going to justify this guy cheating on his wife? Plus, it's a great way to make money. Oh, it's a great way to make money. There you go. Um, the church, if you remember the Council of Basel we talked about last week, had engaged 1,500 prostitutes to take care of the, of the cardinals through the entirety of the Council of Basel. I mean, that's part of it, right? You just, you just expect that that would be part of it. Um, I, I have a great deal of respect for a number of, of people involved with um, Promise Keepers. I'm very proud of the fact that after Promise Keeper events, uh, venues are almost always cleaner than they are before the Promise Keepers came. They actually clean up after themselves so that it was cleaner than it was when the custodians had cleaned it. Um, but regularly, uh, the hotels in towns where they have Promise Keeper events that weekend, the the porn in the in the hotels, the porn usage skyrockets. No. Yep, because there's a bunch of guys by themselves out, in, out in, and, and a lot of times during the day they're talking about horrible temptation and why you need to stand against temptation, which of course leaves a lot of guys tempted. So, this is nothing new, and, it's, and unfortunately we're still dealing with this sort of thing nowadays. Augustine even argued, if you expel prostitution from society, you're going to unsettle everything on account of lusts. You have to have prostitutes to vent the lusts of a society. He did, actually. But he was actually working really hard to to not give in to the temptations that he'd had before. But isn't he the one who said it was wrong even to enjoy sex with your spouse? Yeah, because he thought you guys, you women, are essentially problematic. <laughs> and nice just that you exist <laughs> is a problem, because by definition, you make your husband's lust, and lust is always bad. So, yep. Anyway, Sixtus made 30,000 ducats annually from Roman brothels. Uh, a ducat at this point, at least the Roman ducat here, was equivalent to pretty much to a, a, a florin. That's enough to buy a, a thousand Gutenberg Bibles of their high-end Bibles every year. Or to put it in modern terms, that's roughly a hundred million dollars a year in 
personal profits from his prostitutes. The Pope. Pardon me? Yeah, the most profitable pimp ever. Yeah, pretty much. He guy, this guy made a ton of money off of this sort of stuff. So what did you use that money for? Interestingly. Thank you. I'll get to that in a quick sec. When he died, Sixtus was in the process of drafting a plan to turn Italian nunneries into, quote, brothels filled with the choicest prostitutes, lean with fasting but full of lust, unquote. Because the nuns are just sitting around there not doing anything. We can use those. That's an untapped resource. Is that why in Shakespeare, get thee to a nunnery also meant a brothel? Hmm? Uh, You're good. Okay. Yeah. Why are, why are nunneries, you know, nunneries, oh. nunneries, brothels, you know, same thing. He also supposedly gave uh, Cardinal of Santa Lucia the authorization to practice sodomy during periods of warm weather. Um, when all the young men are out in you know, their shirt sleeves or, or shorts or whatever like that. Because he, he didn't think the problem was the sodomy that Paul had done, say. It was the rape of young boys that's the problem. The sodomy is actually, in fact, Sixtus himself was reputed to be a homosexual who promoted several cardinals because of their beauty. In fact, he specifically said he promoted several cardinals because they were extremely handsome young men. And he liked to be surrounded by extremely handsome young men. Now, I say supposedly because uh, even though this is from contemporary sources, they're from contemporary sources within about 50 years of this. No, not even that. Within like 25 years of this. Of like proto-reformers. So some of this... It's hard to know if somebody's, just, it's, it's just a smear campaign. Some of it you go, now Sixtus himself wrote this. You know, there's, there's creepy stuff going on. Um, it's just an unpleasant part in church history. Now, Sixtus did think he was glorifying God for the most part. For the most part. He also knew he was trying to get a lot of money for himself. But he's like, I'm saving countless women and children from molestation. I'm putting those nuns and pretty young men to work. I'm raising money. Uh, for the people I care about and for the church, this is a good thing, right? You asked, what did he use that money for, right? Really important stuff. The Sistine Chapel is named after Pope Sixtus, which in Italian is Papa Sisto, Sisto il Quarto. So, Papa Sisto, Pope Sisto, has the Sistine Chapel. Uh, technically, it's a restoration of an existing chapel, the larger chapel. This one is called the Great Chapel but it eventually became known as Sixtus's Chapels, the Sistine Chapel. But the whole point of it was to be a private chapel for the Pope and the, and the important officials to do the fancy worship, the special occasion worship. He had this little chapel for everyday mundane worship, you know, stuff you got to do every day. But for the really important stuff, if you really want to wow people, you got to have a nicer place, right? We see that from Scripture. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You can have all the places that you go, fine, this is the everyday thing. But if you really want a special one that makes people go, ooh, wow, you are awesome, you have to make it really, really attractive. Right? Okay. Yeah. So it's designed to be lavish. It's designed to be expensive. Crazy expensive. Extremely lavish. Now, you remember the famous ceiling of the Sistine Chapel? That was not Sixtus. That was a generation later. His nephew, Pope Julius II, his nephew, Pope Julius II, commissioned this to be painted by Michelangelo. That's later on. But before the place even opened, he gets people like Botticelli to do frescoes all over the place. Uh, beautiful frescoes. I would love to see these. Yeah, you've got a chance to see this. I would love to see this. Um, so before it even opened, they've done all this kind of stuff. In fact, the tapestries cost more than 15,000 ducats to weave. 
and then another thousand ducats for Raphael to paint. The tapestries were over $50 million. Now, there are two kinds of people in the world. Well, three. Third kind doesn't care. Uh, of the people that actually care, there's two kinds of people in the world. Those that sit there and go, that's just so amazing. The glory of Christ. And, and then the people who go, you, you spent 50 million on the drapes. Granted, they're really nice drapes. You spent 50 million? Picture it if you heard a, a church today, and they're like, we just did a whole new cathedral. It's amazing. We've got a beautiful sound system. I mean, the stage is amazing. In fact, see these curtains over there? 50 million just for the curtains. Just for the curtains. And then we have this incredible artwork on the wall. I mean, each one of these, hand done. I mean, the best. Only the best. Look at this chair that, the, that our pastor sits in. Solid gold. Solid gold. We need you to give to this ministry. No! No, I'm not giving you a dime! If I give you my entire life's earnings, you just put some more gold on your chair! No! Two kinds of people. Um, I would love to see the Sistine Chapel. Uh, the architecture of it is interesting. I mean, the dimensions are exactly the dimensions of Solomon's temple in, in Jerusalem. I mean, I, I would love to see how they put it together. I would love to see this. Having said that, I totally understand why my mom, when she was there, said, you have this, this moment of going, this is gorgeous. And looking at the picture, then she's like, and then it's, it's overwhelming. There's just so much going on. I think it's kind of sickening after a little bit, because you go, how many people are dying of plague and are starving in the streets while they're doing this. For their worship place? No. For their fancy worship place that you use on special occasions when you're trying to wow people with how amazing you are. In fact, Michelangelo even said that. When he came to paint the Sistine Chapel with the ceiling, he really did not want to do the painting. And he kept going, this is just one big ego trip for Julius. I mean, I'll do it, and I will do it as well as I can do it. But this is just so that Julius will be remembered as an amazing pope. Julius went, I want my own Hey, the ceiling's unpainted. Let's do the ceiling. Funky little teaching number. Number two. 1478. Pope Sistus works in Castile with uh, King Fernando II and Queen Isabel to create what? Anybody want to hazard a guess? He's... He's up the brothels in Rome, earns $100 million a year, pumps a lot of that back into the Sistine Chapel to impress the heck out of everybody. One last thing I want him to be remembered for. Anybody want to make a guess? Hmm? Spanish Inquisition. I'm going to start the Spanish Inquisition to find heretics and witches and root them out so we can get rid of them. Because I'm, a, I'm the righteous pope, and I want to be remembered for having rooted out everything. And so they named a demurrier named Tomas de Torquemada as the first Grand Inquisitor. And that's where we're going to pick this up next week. Talking about the Spanish Inquisition and the legacy of Pope Sixtus. Now, for those of you who think, oh man, you just got a negative attitude, you're just ripping down everything. Why am I doing that? Is it because I hate Rome? No. Why am I even bringing any of this stuff up? Why is it germane to us? Other than history is interesting and everybody should know their own history. What's the point of all this? What is points from all of this? What would you say? Like I said last week, the 
the people, you know, like this one guy I like to listen to goes on about how we're the new Babylon and the world is ending and it's going to, you know, be any time and in 2015 will be the end and blah, blah, blah. And I'm thinking, that's Babylon, but <laughs> we've been through Babylon through the church history like the whole time. So yep. yeah. for us to predict that things are going to spiral Ain't nothing new about Babylon. Well, at any time, any time any pastor goes, and I'll tell you, you know, it's going to be 2015, you go, well, since Jesus said nobody's going to know the date, the moment you start spotting a date, I'm pretty sure it's not going to be that well, date. Well, he isn't yeah. saying that Jesus is coming. He's just saying that, like, America's going to be pretty much over because we're, you know, we're the new Babylon. But I'm seeing new Babylon yep. throughout every century you've talked about. Yep. The number of the beast is six to six to six to six. <laughs> no, 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 no. But it is interesting. The, the, I mean, the number of man is six, right? On the sixth period, on the sixth day, one day short of the seventh day, the perfect day. The number of man is not quite perfect. Seven is the number of God, perfect. Six is not quite perfect. The number of the beast is seriously not quite perfect. Remember, because you know, there's no, there's no holy. Very holy. I mean, it's, you, to say very holy, you got to say holy, holy. And holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. You've got to triple something to say as, as holy as you can imagine. You just repeat it. There's no word for very. So if you want to say this is not God, not God, not God, 666. Yeah. I think going through the Renaissance is interesting. I've studied the Renaissance a lot. It's probably a lot nicer view what we looked at in the beginning of our history degree. And I think in general, we look back at all these great things that happened during the Renaissance, and we wake at the sin that was going on. And we're not going to study that. We're not going to look at that because look at the accomplishments of the people. And I think we do that a lot today. Is if man's doing okay, if the church looks looks like it's doing good, then that's what's important instead of the reality of the situation. Excellent. And please, please. I mean, I'm, I'm not kidding. I would love to see, love to see Botticelli's. Uh, uh, frescoes. I am a huge fan of Raphael. I would love to see the, the tapestries, although they, I think they keep them covered up a lot. So do they? Did you they get to see the tapestries? Good. Okay. Good. I, 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 so I mean, I totally appreciate. I'm a huge fan of Leonardo da Vinci all over the place. But just like what Sarah's saying, we can tend to say those are so amazing and kind of gloss over the fact that you go and everything that spiritually matters is going farther and farther into the toilet. Even though God is at the same time continuing to have the Lollards and continuing to have his, his Bible printed, continuing to bring up people like uh, John, John, Jan Hus and, and, uh, and, and Tyndale and all these different people. God is keeping truth alive and um, uh, preparing the way for, for things to kind of break open. He's even opening up the doors of, of technologies and things. But we can be so impressed by so many things today that are not impressive to God. They're shiny, they're loud, they catch your attention, they're emotive, but they're not genuine. They're not God-honoring. And yet we tend to be drawn to bright red signs, we tend to be drawn to big buildings, we tend to be impressed by the, I mean, Discover Channel you know, has stuff about the biggest building, the biggest this, the best looking, most beautiful this. Um, we, we, we spent most of our lives being impressed by success, i.e. making more money, i.e. making things bigger, i.e. more people coming to this. We have to stop and say, they were doing the same thing back then. Um, is that a healthy thing? 
Now, a, a lot of times people will say, well, yeah. In fact, I even talked to somebody one time. They said, well, yeah, you can say that because you're a small church. You're trying to self-justify. I'm like, no. Yes, I am. A, <laughs> we are a small church. But my point is, um, are we trying to please God or man? Are we trying to impress those around us, or are we trying to do the right things? Are we actively saying, I don't care how popular it is, I don't care how comfortable it is, I want to do the right thing, because it's the right thing. Exactly. And there are some big churches that are large because God has blessed them. Right? And there are some small churches that are small because they're doing a cruddy job. They're not doing what they're supposed to be doing. But an amazing number, an amazing number of, of large churches in America are large because they're well-managed businesses or because there's no reason for Satan to undermine them or because they put all their money back into making themselves bigger and bigger. Um, how do you gauge? If a small church is small because uh, they just aren't doing their job and if, or a small church is small because it's filling a niche, how do you gauge if a church is large because they're doing God's work and God is blessing them? How do you gauge if a church is large because they're doing the exact opposite of God's work and, and freezing up resources to uh, to just bolster themselves. How do you how do you decide that? I would think so. It'd be diff more difficult than trying to track equal. <laughs> Remember last week, last week we talked about this. It's like how do you decide if a gospel is a ra is a is a godly gospel? How do you decide if it's coming from the Lord? Good, it's fruit. Bounce off of scripture. Don't decide whether how impressive it looks to you or how comfortable it makes you feel. Stop and say, wait, what am I looking for in a God-honoring church? Does this have that? If it's a God-honoring church, and it's huge, bully. If it's a God-honoring church, and it's small, fine. But start with saying, what is God looking for in a church? What is the Bible looking for in a church? Is this church doing that? That's what the gauge is. Let's pray. Dear Lord, thank you for the opportunity to to see that there is nothing new under the sun. Thank you for the painful lesson we learned from history that there's always been shining moments where you have shown your glory and there's always been darkness where we cloud and obscure ourselves from your glory. Lord, I pray, help us to truly seek you out. Help us to desire to honor you in all that we do. Help us not to be impressed with the stuff the world is impressed with. In Jesus' name. Next week, the Spanish Inquisition. Wacky fun, that.